But soy, certainly avoid it to excess, avoid the modern processed soy foods. And I would include in that category things like the protein shakes, the bars, the energy bars, and soy milk. Soy milk's not the worst product that's out there, but the problem is people will drink a lot of it. And that's the problem. I mean, as we discussed before, people do not overeat something like natal. You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kyberg, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. Dr. Kayla Daniel, I'm so excited to have you on Muscle Medicine Podcast to talk about a really important topic that we have not talked about yet. Before we dive into soy and everything and anything about soy and how it relates to thyroid health, can you give the listeners a little snippet of your background? Well, I'm known as the naughty nutritionist because I like to debunk a lot of the myths that uh, so many people are talking about. And I like to have fun with it. I think a lot of people are overwhelmed by the amount of inconsistent and contradictory information. And so uh, I like to have a little fun with it so people can learn while enjoying themselves. So I like to say I offer edutainment. (laughs) I love it. And you, um, you have a PhD. I do in nutritional sciences. Yeah. And I've written several books. The first one you've mentioned, The Whole Soy Story, The Dark Side of America's Favorite Health Food. And I was the co-author of the best-selling book, Nourishing Broth, An Old-Fashioned Remedy for the Modern World. And I did an e-book called Hook, Line, and Stinker, The Truth About Fermented Cod Liver Oil. Oh my God, I love it. So cheeky. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So let's dive in, because I know when I was learning about nutrition, there was a lot of recommendations about soy and getting your protein and eating lean meats. And you have a whole kind of different take on soy that maybe soy might not be the healthiest for us now? Right. Well, the research on soy goes back about 80 years. And the truth is the research indicates soy can lead to malnutrition, thyroid problems, digestive distress, autoimmune problems, allergies, of course. Soy is one of the top allergies. It can cause attention deficit disorders. It can even cause heart disease and cancer, which, of course, the publicity mongers would like us to think soy prevents, but not so. Yeah. And when did soy start to shift? Like, when was it? So the research was 80 years ago, but I feel like there was this phase of like, everyone eats soy, and soy was really popular. And now it's kind of turning out of favor and kind of getting like a bad name. 
Yeah, sure was. So the research goes on all of those 80 years and more recently with the soy industry uh, publishing a lot, promoting a lot of studies because some very smart people realized that the way to improve soy's image was to prove that it was a health food. And I put prove in quotes because, well, you can prove anything you want to prove if you design a study a certain way. So for years, soy had a reputation as being either something people ate if they were broke or you would eat in communist countries like Cuba or Russia, or if you were a hippie at a commune and all those stories of them boiling away the beans for hours and hours and still indigestible. So soy had a bad reputation. So to give it some up-leveling, to make it an elite expensive food and charge a lot for it and make people want it, they started developing the health claims. And it was something a lot of us wanted to believe. I certainly did uh, when I first started reading all these articles with headlines like the joy of soy and the soy of cooking and claims that soy could cure everything from cancer to ingrown toenails, plus it was cheap. Um, That sounded good to me. Yeah. And I think I also heard often that like, the Asian countries eat lots of soy and look how healthy they are and look how free of disease they are, the most Western countries, which is kind of like a little bit of uh, deviate, like it's not entirely true, right? Yeah, that's, that's what we hear all the time. And there's a couple parts to that. The first is the misconception that Asians eat a lot of soy. Well, it's true that that everywhere they in Asia, and Asia is a big country, a big continent, many people, many countries, many dietary and lifestyle customs. But wherever you go, it's true that they eat a little bit. Now I'm talking a little bit. And until recently, it was old fashioned real food soy things. They weren't eating soy shakes and soy milks and soy bars and things like that. So wherever you went, they were eating tiny amounts. And the places they ate the most was in the monasteries because the monks seemed to have noticed that when soy consumption went up, the naughty behavior went down. So they served a lot of tofu in the monasteries. Interesting. Well, another place they'd eat a lot of soy in Asia was in uh, households where the husband had been unfaithful because the wife would give him extra helpings of soy to decrease the desire or the ability or both. Oh, and on a hormonal level, is that like they're decreasing? uh, Decreasing the testosterone. testosterone. Yeah, yeah. So interesting. So I love to break out soy as it relates to the thyroid and thyroid disease, even if we were going to niche it down even more specifically like hypothyroid or women struggling with Hashimoto's, like how there's a link between soy and thyroid disease. Well, the studies on, on thyroid actually go way back. It was one of the first problems they noticed. And a lot of the studies, particularly the good studies before the soy industry got in buying buying research from paid off scientists and stuff, back when the studies were by legitimate scientists who were independent, they were starting to notice thyroid problems. Now, a lot of those studies early on were, were paid for by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and they had some of the greatest scientists in the world, actually, and some laboratories. And part of what they were trying to do is find a way to make soy protein a safer product for animals so that they could grow healthy without the problems that one would get from soy. 
Mm. Now, thyroid is kind of an interesting problem from the animal perspective because they want the animals to get fat as quickly as possible, but they don't want them to get sick prematurely. So they were trying to do a little balancing act with that. They also wanted the animals to reproduce and too much soy protein in the diet was a problem there. So a great deal of research was being done by some very good scientists and they found this quite a challenge. And it was really quite an interesting project going through those hundreds of studies and, and uh, analyzing those. Yeah. And then how did that data on animals start like, was there, is there data also in the human population or just animals? Yeah, that goes back quite a ways too, because people had a very bright idea early on that uh, soy, soybeans could help feed starving people. Uh, Seventh-day Adventist missionaries went to Asia with the idea of helping babies whose mothers, say, died in childbirth, babies who, who needed some kind of formula if they couldn't find a you know, another breastfeeding mother that that could could support them. Mm. So they, for very good reasons, came up with the idea of, of making soy formula and uh, using soy milk. And their thought was it was actually really benevolent. It's just it turned out that that it was a good idea that didn't pan out. Mm. So what was, for example, like the babies that were drinking soy milk, what were they finding? Well, they early on they did recognize they had to do things with it to make it into from the soy milk into formula. I'm glad you mentioned that because we have today some vegans who believe that, you know, the baby shouldn't have any animal products, even breast milk, which of course is an animal product. And some of them have had the idea that they could just give the baby soy milk and they're upset because soy formula contains all sorts of additives. And that is true, except without all those additives that try to mimic breast milk, the soy milk is totally inadequate and the babies were failing to thrive, getting very sick, malnourished, and in many cases hospitalized and and even died. Mm. So early on, going way back, they were developing soy formula. And again, it wasn't something they were doing in China. They actually came up with the first soy formula in Baltimore. Mm. So that's something that surprises people. And also that soy milk not really being something that was was drunk very often. Yeah. So what's the research specifically maybe with like, soy and like an autoimmune disease like Hashimoto's? Well, with the thyroid research, early on, they weren't talking about Hashimoto's so much. I mean, now everybody's talking about the autoimmune forms, but they were talking about hypothyroidism and hyperthyroidism. And we actually see some of both as well as things like thyroid storms with with, uh, soy, soy consumption. And Basically, there's, there's several ways that soy can be leading to thyroid disease, but one of them is it interferes with thyroid peroxidase, the enzyme that helps us uh, with the thyroid hormones, with T, T4, T3, etc. And, and that's a biggie. Yeah. And does soy, like for those who take thyroid medication, does soy affect the effectiveness of the medication? 
It certainly does. And even people who are proponents of soy understand that if you're taking thyroid medications, whether we're talking Synthroid or something more natural like Westroid or Naturethroid or Armour or something, that they should be taken apart, that you shouldn't take them together because they they actually do this sort of push-pull thing on, on the, uh, the thyroid that on the one hand it's being stimulated, on the other hand it's being depressed. And that's that's basically a lot of stress on the thyroid. Yeah. For for the people who do maybe enjoy soy in moderation, maybe it's like tempeh or miso, can it be done in moderation? Well, you can count me as among the people who enjoy some soy here and there. And, um, you know, I should say off off the top that I don't have thyroid problems um, or, or other issues that might be a reason to avoid it as much as possible. Mm-hmm. But I do enjoy a little here and there, uh, particularly the old fashioned products such as miso soup, which is wonderfully helpful. And natto is wonderful for vitamin K2, not because soybeans have K2, but because the bacteria involved with the production of the natto create the, create the K2. Yeah. And tempeh is healthy. And the thing is, with something like miso and tempeh or natto, you're not going to overeat it. That's one of the keys. So if you're making a stir fry with tempeh, you're, you're probably going to limit it. And natto is a very strong food. I mean, people either love it or hate it. In fact, it smells so bad that in Japan, they have separate uh, rooms in the restaurants for the natto eaters. Interesting. And it's kind of stringy and slimy. And as I said, you know, you either like it or you don't. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's very black and white. But what's not in doubt is that it's healthy unless, say, you're allergic to soy. So those are old-fashioned soy foods, and I enjoy some of those, uh, particularly the miso soup. And traditionally, miso soup was made with a fish base as well, so you get some of that good animal nutrition in there. Got it. Tofu is, it doesn't have the fermented uh, healthy properties, but you know, a little bit here and there, uh, say in a stir fry. The problem I would have is when people are having a whole slab of it, say in place of a steak, and that starts to add up very quickly if you're doing that every day. Is there a difference between the fermented and the non-fermented soy in terms of how it affects our thyroid or gut health in general? I think the the fermented soy, the research suggests that it's more digestible, that it's more healthy. And then, as I mentioned, you're more, you're going to be more inclined to eat smaller amounts of it as well. Yeah. Why do you think some countries like Israel, Germany, New Zealand have issued warnings against the consumption of soy? I think particularly children and infants, right? Was it from the from the um, the formula perspective? Uh, well, Israel was very courageous standing up to soy formula and warning citizens that it should never be used except as a last resort. And generally, there are many things you can try before resorting to soy formula. And Israel was a very interesting situation because... They had a number of parents who were choosing soy formula, not because the baby needed it, but because of a, they were overdoing the orthodox kosher rules, which had to do with you don't drink milk at a meal that's containing meat. 
So if the baby was at the table, they would feel that they wanted the baby having soy formula, even though the baby was not required to not have the milk. So it's just one of those things, you know, going overboard, thinking it was more spiritual and not realizing the dangers. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's why they got very interested. There was some defective soy formula that caused a few babies to to get sick, be hospitalized and die. And that's where the Israeli government and health authorities got involved, started researching it and ultimately published their warnings. It's interesting how food can be so emotional, spiritual, on a religious level, but just emotional in general, you know? All those things, yes. those things. What are your thoughts on studies that have been done on the elders in this certain region? I might butcher it. It's Okinawans. Yeah. Who, who actually consumed a lot of soy, right? Well, um, we don't actually know that because you, you see very different figures in the Wilcox's popular books about the Okinawa diet and about the studies that they actually did. And this is something we see fairly often is that things will get distorted and sometimes just simplified in a way that's not completely accurate, sometimes completely misrepresented in the popular books. So we've got that with the Okinawa situation, and we've got some widely different figures in terms of how much they eat. Right. And it appears they do eat it, but not huge amounts. But what you see in the, in the book is they're recommending canola oil, when in fact what they were eating traditionally was actually lard. And lard has a lot of monounsaturated fat. And the people who were over 100 in Okinawa, they were not growing up in canola oil, which was a Canadian oil invented only a few decades ago. So there's the popular book kind of um, not mentioning the lard, but emphasizing soy and canola oil and not talking about the bacon and the pork. Yeah. And for the people who don't know about the study in the book, it was saying that the Okinawan elders were at extremely low risk for cancers that were hormone dependent, including like breast cancer, prostate cancer, ovarian cancer. And they were tying that high soy consumption, even though it sounds like they weren't really consuming that much soy, they were just consuming not canola oil. Well, with with any of us, with any human studies, I mean, we're not perfect lab rats because we eat a lot of different things. And among other things they ate in Okinawa and still eat a lot of would be things like uh, sweet potatoes. So there's the fresh air, there's the work ethic, there's their mission, uh, their sense of family. There's with humans, there's there's so many factors. You know, it's never just just one miracle food or even a couple miracle foods or, for that matter, a few devils like soy. Right, right. How does soy, you know, for myself, if I have soy, I get brain fog. Like, I almost feel hungover almost yeah. immediately, and I kind of get a headache. For those of us who might get that kind of reaction, it's interesting because soy is in a lot of food products And so like, I have to really be careful and read labels if I do eat packaged or any sort of processed food. How does soy show up in foods kind of unsuspectingly? 
Well, I have a saying, if it has a label, don't eat it. I know, I know. (laughs) But, you know, we all do, you know, and I'm no better than anyone else in that regard. Soy is in more than 60% of processed and packaged foods. It's in nearly 100% of fast foods. It's hiding in a whole lot of restaurant foods where you might not even suspect it's there. And for you and me, if we're mostly eating real food that we prepare ourselves in our own kitchens, you know, a little once in a while, not a big deal. But for the many people who are allergic to soy, this is, this is very challenging. They can put their life at risk. And many little children who are allergic to peanuts, they may not realize they're also allergic to soy, but then boom, one day it happens and uh, major emergencies. Now, for many of us, it's not an issue of of being actually allergic to soy with that immediate hypersensitivity reaction. It's more like being sensitive to it, where you might notice that a day later or two days later, you're you're feeling more fatigued, or maybe uh, you've got a little black under your eye, black circles. Or in your case, maybe, I guess, a mild headache. They're all clues that, that something's off. Yeah. Is soy in that high percentage in foods because it's like an emulsifier? Like what is it? Why would a company add soy in? Is it a shelf stabilizer? Like what, what is it that it's in 60% of our foods? Yeah, the emulsifier would be soy lecithin. And that would be tiny amounts in things like your chocolate bar, for example. Mm-hmm. Now, for most of us, that's really not a big deal. If you're allergic to soy, then the challenge is on to find a chocolate bar that doesn't have it. But lecithin, even for people who are allergic, is generally not a problem. And as I mentioned, it, it would be very small quantities. So that's for a processing reason. Now, with other things, it's added as a cheap additive. Now, back when when I was growing up uh, in the 50s, in the 60s, soy would be in things like hamburger packages, you know, mixed in to make it cheaper. It was considered something people would not buy unless they were broke. So it was something people would do because they were frugal and it did not taste good. And they did a lot of tinkering to try to figure out how much they could sneak in before people would notice. Now, that all shifted when soy gained the image as a health food. So these days, a whole lot of people who, say, pick up a can of bumblebee tuna, they might not mind that there's some soy protein isolate in there. They're thinking, um, well, if I can't taste it, why should I mind? It's, it's good for me, right? Yeah. So it sneaks into a whole lot of things. And for, for various reasons, I mean, there's the soy oil, there's the soy protein, the soy lecithin, there's any number or fractions of soy that that are put in things. Yeah. You had mentioned that just going back to like thyroid medication, I was just thinking about this, that like thyroid medication can help boost the thyroid. And then so like eating soy can potentially depress the thyroid. So it's kind of like this boost, you know, like stimulate, depress, stimulate, depress, stimulate, depressed, kind of swinging the thyroid, which could potentially induce tumors. Exactly. That's, that's precisely how they can induce tumors in laboratory animals, Yeah, you know, putting that stress. And one of the interesting things with soy is that 
Certainly long-term overconsumption of soy will depress the thyroid, leading into long-term hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's, depending on which way it's going to be for you. But for some people, when they initially start either drinking soy milk or say eating soy energy bars or something, they might initially feel more energy because initially it kind of irritates the thyroid, but it, it stimulates it. So we have um, a, an amazingly compelling story from an herbalist who admitted he was fat and out of shape. And he went into the wilderness, some sort of, you know, distant trek, you know, 10 days to, you know, pull out some rare herbs. And he thought, well, he'd buy all these soy, soy protein bars so that he wouldn't have, because he wasn't going to be able to cook, cook much food. And uh, he came back and then he went into a um, thyroid storm where he was run off to the hospital, you know, the ambulance siren, the whole thing. He almost died. And then they couldn't figure out what had caused it because then he returned to normal. And then he went back and he did it again. And bingo, it happened a second time. And at that point, he was starting to put it together. But uh, that is one of the risks that fortunately we don't see all the time. But in his case, he was eating very little but soy during a, during a, a time period there. Interesting. Soybeans also contain some anti-nutrients and plant hormones, which can kind of disrupt the gut. Can you talk about a couple of those? Well, in terms of the gut health, we could talk about things like the what in the old days they were talking about as the trypsin inhibitors, and now they know there's not just trypsin inhibitors, but a whole flock of protease inhibitors that make it hard for us to digest protein. Now, the lucky people, when they first get the idea that they should eat a lot of soy, will get a really bad tummy ache, and that will be a clue to them that it's not for them and it's over. But for other people, it doesn't, it doesn't happen that badly all at once, but it does interfere with the digestion. And those also, there's also something called phytates, which interfere with mineral absorption. So, for example, let's think about somebody who cannot tolerate dairy and she does soy milk. So she's thinking it's a substitute. Now, the only way it would actually be a substitute is if they're adding calcium and some other minerals, which they do. And then they add the wrong form of vitamin D, uh, D2, because, you know, they got a vegetarian um, marketing campaign going on. So they're putting in the wrong type of D to appeal to the vegans. So they've got calcium in there. Now, it's a cheap form of calcium that's hard to absorb to begin with. And then there's all that, all those phytates in the soy milk. So you're not going to digest very much in there. Right. So the phytates kind of block like proper absorption, causing deficiencies. Exactly. Got it. And it's deficiencies that are common, for example, like autoimmune disease, like zinc, zinc, I think is like a big one. And then the other deficiencies are like iron and calcium. 
Well, it really depends on, you know, we're all a little different. And I would say there's not one size fits all for autoimmune folks. You know, we say certain things in common, but, you know, let's test and see where things stand. Most people actually have too much iron. And the phytates that are in soy or in other products can actually help us remove some of the excess iron from our bodies. And uh, that's actually one of the pros of phytates. But if you're a vegan who's who's drinking soy milk, the phytates are going to block some of what you need. Yeah. So it's very nuanced. It is. Absolutely. You know, you know, everybody wants the, the formula that fits all. And I sure wish I had that because I'd be a very rich woman, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> way back when I was learning about soy, they were talking about, it was kind of confusing because it would talk about how soy could improve symptoms of menopause, like hot flashes. But then in some people, soy could exacerbate symptoms. And it always felt like kind of confusing. Like, oh, it, I mean, granted, yes, we're all different and, you know, all built differently. But it was, I always found that interesting. Can you... It is interesting. And it's one of the difficulties because we do have a lot of people who say they've had soy and it reduces their hot flashes. It helps them to sleep. And, you know, I accept their testimonials as being true. But the thing is, the the research on soy and menopause is, is very inconsistent and contradictory evidence. So it might help with the symptoms But what we know for sure, and there's really no doubt of it, is it really will deplete the thyroid. So that's not what we want. And women who are premenopausal or menopausal who take soy to help with menopause, they start to gain weight, their thyroid goes down, they develop various health problems. They go to their doctor and the doctor says, well, what do you expect? You're in menopause. And unfortunately, a lot of people will accept that. It's something I would not accept and did not accept, but many people do. Yeah. So for women who, you know, you you mentioned this, like you eat soy and it's like immediate gas, bloating, uncomfortable. Like that's a sign. Don't eat the soy. Well, those are the lucky people. Those are the lucky people, right. But then for the other population, and that I'm one of the lucky people because that, it just takes me down. But um. For the unlucky people, how would they know if they have a sensitivity or if they should avoid soy or like how, what would be signs? Well, it's tricky because it can come on very slowly and gradually depending on, of course, how much you're having. Mm -hmm. And because we're all a little different, some more sensitive than others, and it's going to depend on other things in your diet, missing pieces, maybe health challenges you're already facing. I have a protocol having to do with recovering from soy, but one of the tricky parts of that is often people get into trouble with soy because they had a health problem to begin with. They thought soy would help them with that. So then we have to deal with the problems the soy created plus whatever was going on before they started overdosing and mainlining soy, right? Right, yeah. Let's see, I lost track of your original question there. That's okay. How do people who aren't the lucky ones who have like an immediate terrible reaction, those who maybe have a subtle, don't really know um, reaction to soy, how can they start to kind of pick up if they should cut it out? 
there's two ways you can go about that. With some of my clients who have no shortage of money, we do some very serious, expensive food sensitivity allergy types of tests. Mm. And that doesn't look at the immediate, you know, the hyper reactions, but it looks at the delayed sensitivity reactions. So that's one of the things we can look at and also look at the things that they might be reacting to as well as soy, because the people who react to soy often have other things they don't do well with either. So that can give us a look. Now, the low cost way to do it is just very simple. So have people get a little notebook, say something like this. And then on the left hand side each day, they jot down say what they're eating. And I always advise them to do it in a very simple way so it's not a production. So they would just jot down, say, two eggs, bacon, and sauerkraut. So I'm not telling them to weigh it and measure it and all of that or figure out the grams, just, you know, put it down basically. Then maybe a handful of nuts. Then they go to lunch. They have a tofu surprise with one of their friends. And whatever. Tofu surprise. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Surprise on so many levels. Exactly. (laughs) So on the right side of the notebook, I have them write down again, very briefly. This isn't the diary of Anne Frank. We want to keep it simple with the objective of keeping it up for, you know, at least several months. So it needs to be simple so people will keep it up. So on the other side, they put down, you know, woke up without an alarm feeling great or woke up feeling like the living dead. Or after lunch, they, they could barely drive home. They were so sleepy and needed to take a nap. Cranky with husband for no good reason. <laughs> for no good reason? What? <laughs> <laughs> so the thing is, most of us will understand if, if we have a reaction to something pretty quickly. And I would say most of us know that if we have a pasta lunch, that we're really sleepy afterwards. You know, a few lucky people, it's all good. But many of us, you know, will notice that. Where the diary gets interesting is that after a month or two or even three, you may be able to start to pick up certain patterns that two days after having a certain thing, you're not feeling good. So that's where it becomes useful. Yeah, yeah. So that's, you know, the price is right, the cost of a pen and a notebook. And in my opinion, it's actually more accurate than, than spending all that money on the tests, which are unfortunately not totally reliable. Mm, I see. If someone was interested in testing, what would be the test that you would order? Well, I work with the laboratory, uh, Cell Sciences, ALCAT, and there's various panels. They have, uh, say, whether you're testing 150 foods or 200 or 300 foods, plus options to test vitamin supplements uh, for mold allergies, for certain medications. It can be extremely comprehensive. Of course, the more you're testing, the more the cost goes up. Right. Sometimes it's a good idea to just see what's what. Yeah. Yeah. This was my last memory of having soy. I had cut it out for a couple years. And when I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's, I'm in remission now, but I went to take my mother for her birthday. I think it was like her 68th birthday to sushi in New York and got like the gluten-free soy sauce. I don't know if it was a sushi because I don't really eat sushi anymore or the soy sauce, but on the train ride home, I got so sick we had to get off the train for me to 
basically throw up yeah. get back on the train to get home. And then I was like, it was like my body was like physically rejecting. It might've been the soy. I don't know. It might've been the sushi. It was really nice sushi. So I, I kind of think it's the soy, but ever since then I was like, no more of either. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you, you seem to have a, a body that's sensitive and gives you some messages. So yeah, it is sensitive. If there was one thing that you wanted to tell women who have thyroid issues or think they might have thyroid issues, struggling with fatigue, weight gain, what would it be that you would want them to know? With soy, certainly avoid it to excess, avoid the modern processed soy foods. And I would include in that category things like the protein shakes, the bars, the energy bars, and soy milk. Mm -hmm. Soy milk's not the worst product that's out there, but the problem is people will drink a lot of it. And that's the problem. I mean, as we discussed before, people do not overeat something like natto. Right. Definitely cut out the processed packaged soy products. And, you know, I have the same recommendation having to do with processed or packaged anything. I say Mother Nature wants us eating real food. So if it's got a label, beware. I know. I know. That's such great advice. So, so solid. So you mentioned you have a protocol. Is that online? People would need to contact me at this point. And some of it's pretty basic, cut out the soy as the first thing, you know, the the old saying, you know, if you want to get dry, get out of the rain, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's an initial thing. And for many people, that's that's a very important first step that might be the main thing they need to do. For other people, we're going to be looking at, okay, now we need to heal the thyroid. What else are we going to need to do? That's almost certainly going to involve something like uh, removing gluten and other um, hazards, removing a lot of toxins, MSG, all of those things, you know, cleaning up the diet generally. It's not like any one of them is necessarily the one thing that's causing all the problems. It's just that the the buildup of it people reach the tipping point and they go over the edge. Yeah. Yeah. Where can people find you? My website is drkayla.com, D-R-K-A-A-Y-L-A-D-A-N-I-E-L.com. And people can contact me through the website and I do respond. Amazing. Cool. Are you on any of the like social media platforms? I'm on Facebook. Good. Same thing. Dr. Dr. Kayla Daniel again. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. It was so informative and I think our listeners will love it. Fantastic. That's a wrap. I have two truths that I fully believe in. First, to be 1% better every single day. And second, all feedback is good feedback because it helps us grow. Why do I say this? If you're enjoying these conversations and you find this is adding value, send us some love by subscribing to Muscle Medicine Podcast on iTunes. And if you want to share your voice with the world and scream it from the rooftops and tell your friends, or you can just give us a little feedback so we can grow by rating and reviewing Muscle Medicine on iTunes. Thank you guys. So much gratitude. Dr. Emily Kybert here. Thank you.